really sit back just like we are still in control. That's why we say little power over the state of the world. But it's evidence that Satan's rulership, current rulership of the world, and how humanity forfeited that rulership in the garden, Satan offered to Jesus. He said, when Jesus was uh, in the wilderness for 40 days, he was tempted by Satan. Satan said, You're the king of the world, and I will give you to me if you will worship me. But Jesus immediately said, It is written that man will worship God only. But the way Satan, the reason Satan was able to offer it is because he is the ruler of this world. We have the world system, a world system of deception, a world system of darkness that influences world events. Again, God is still in control. God is still sovereign. But the ruler of this world is no longer God's agent. It's the fallen garden. It is Satan. Now, that's going to come. That will not be the condition forever because the second Adam will come and reclaim that which the first Adam lost. And that coming of the second Adam is prophesied in the beginning. In Genesis 3, when the first Adam lost it, what does the Lord say? In the prophecy right there in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman will crush the serpent. And then that prophecy of the coming of Christ to reclaim what Adam lost, the reign that Adam lost, is over and over. It's in the Old Testament over and over and over. And we're going to see some of those passages in the next time we see them all in the whole 24 hours because there's so many. We're going to see, we're going to he kind of highlights some of them. And then the prophecy continues even into the New Testament. Let's just look at some of these Old Testament passages. It wasn't just Genesis 3.15. It's also Genesis 39.10 where we see Messiah's Christ reign prophesied. There we read, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. Jesus is in the line of Judah. In the tribe of Judah. He's a descendant. He's in that tribe. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. That's, that's a, a reference to the coming of Messiah. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And then we see in Psalms the coming of Christ, the reclaimed reign is not just in Genesis 3, it's not just in Genesis 49, it's also in Psalm 2, where here we've got Christ's reign prophesied. Now, let me just pause for a minute. Christ, you know, if, if, if Jesus had a football jersey, it wouldn't say Christ the football. That's not, that's not his last name, of course. It, it, it's, it's a title for him. It comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, Messiah, chosen one. Mashiach translated into anointed one, anointed one, one chosen by God. Mashiach in the Hebrew translated into Greek is Christos, Christos translated in English is Christ. And so it's a title for him. It's the same Hebrew word as Messiah. And so here in Psalm 2, we have Messiah speaking, the Messiah speaking to the Father. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have forgotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations of your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession in this land. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Rod of iron is a, is a, a description of his absolute authority when he comes. 
there will be total submission to Jesus as the God-man who rules the universe, total submission to his righteous government. And that is through his and the last sentence there in verse 9, you shall settle them like persons were. Again, these are descriptions of power and, and of authority of the Messiah reigning on the earth. It wasn't just prophesied in Genesis 3 15. It wasn't just prophesied in Genesis 49. It wasn't just prophesied in Samuel, or excuse me, Psalm 2. It's also prophesied in 2 Samuel 7. What the Lord is speaking to David. And he said, the Lord says to David, when your days are complete, when you lie down with your father, he will give you back to the kingdom. I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. This is about the reign of the right to rule, which Jesus has. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house, the Lord's talking about a descendant that you're going to have, David, that's what Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. One more prophecy in the Old Testament about the reign of Messiah. Daniel 7, verse 14. This is an image that Daniel sees about the Son of Man. Verse 14. And to him, Daniel, was given dominion. Glory and kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We're talking about a forever kingdom that the Messiah will bring. Verse 18. But the saints of the highest one, that's you, and that's me, that's believers who have trusted Christ. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, for all ages to come. That's you and me possessing the kingdom along with God's Messiah, along with God's Christ. So what verse 14 is telling us is that God will give dominion of this earth, reign of this earth, to the Son of Man, to his people. And verse 18 is saying that God's saints, you and me, are going to rule with Messiah. The last of the Old Testament, as I said, this is just a sampling of a few of the many passages in the Old Testament that prophesied the reign of Messiah, where the Messiah would come and reclaim the right to rule that Adam forfeited when he sinned. After the Old Testament, then the New Testament further unpacks the the, uh, the expectation and the prophecy of the coming of Christ who will reign. Revelation 19, we're going to jump all the way to Revelation 19 because that's one of the principal passages in the New Testament that unpacks this, that further develops the prophecy of Christ coming to reclaim what Adam lost. And we're going to see in Revelation 19 in a moment that when Christ comes, the Messiah comes again to reclaim what Adam lost, he will come as judge, jury, and executioner. His authority will be undeniable, and his sovereignty and power and judgment will be 
irrefutable. No one can deny it, and we'll see that in a moment because the majesty is beyond description. Revelation 19, verse 7. This is John speaking, the Apostle John. He says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and the angels, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty souls of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. These are words of salvation. These are words of authority. These are words of power. That word hallelujah means it's a Hebrew word, and it's a command. It says, praise God. We just, we, we took the Hebrew, the Greeks took the Hebrew word and put it into Greek. And we take the Hebrew word and we put it into English. It just means praise God. That is a term of sovereignty because we're praising the one who is above us, the Father. And then it says at the end, for the Lord, that's the word sovereignty, our God, that's an analogy for sovereignty, the Almighty, the word of God, a title of sovereignty, reigns his action of sovereignty. And then he connects one act of sovereignty that flows like a majestic rainbow. A majestic road here in Revelation 19, verse 09, verse 7. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him for the marriage of the Lamb. The Lamb is a reference to Jesus, has come, and His bride, this is the church, has made herself ready. Verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous act of the saints. This is the church preparing herself, getting ready, the church being prepared. To return with Christ. We saw in the rapture that the church is removed from the earth, taken to heaven, and now, now in Revelation 19, she's being prepared to return, church age believers, to return with Christ to the earth. And she's being clothed, what does it say, in fine linen. And this fine linen represents the righteous act of the saints. So I believe this is a reference to the judgment seat of Christ where believers are being rewarded. For their good works. Good works don't get us into heaven, of course. The only work that gets us into heaven is the work of Christ and all accepting that work. But after we're saved, good works do, do translate into rewards that we receive at the judgment seat of Christ. The only believers at the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone at the judgment seat of Christ is a citizen of heaven, is a child of God. And what happens there is you either get rewards for your obedience to the Lord, or you don't get a reward. And I believe this reference to a fine linen and righteous act is a reference to good works that believers do when after they're saved and rewards that are being given to them as part of the preparation of the bride. She's being made ready to return with Christ. Verse 9. Then he said to me, this is the angel uh, talking to the Apostle John. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are true words of God. Notice that there are weddings, yes. Right? You've got the Lamb and you've got his bride. So you've got Jesus and you've got the church. But this says, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. They're invitees. The, the people who are invited, they're guests. Who are those guests? They're other believers. They're Old Testament believers. They are, they are 
tribulations believers, if you make reference to the marriage supper of the Lamb, Jesus called it in Matthew 22, the marriage feast. It's a reference to the kingdom, the kingdom on earth that God will bring through his Christ, the thousand year reign, the golden age, and then that translates into the eternal kingdom. The thousand year reign, you could say, some theologians have called it the front court to the eternal kingdom. And so the other believers who are invited, the wedding guests to the wedding of the Lamb and the church, in other words, the folks who are invited to the kingdom are resurrected tribulation saints who have, who have been martyred in the tribulation because they they are not willing to align themselves with the Antichrist and they say, I'm a believer. Well, you're going to be martyred the way that works in the tribulation because there is intense evil in the tribulation. Again, we don't care about the tribulation, but we interact with it. But this marriage supper has these other guests and they're described as blessed. Those other guests are believers who are from the tribulation and resurrected Old Testament believers as well. Verse 10. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John speaking to him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the angel knows his place. He says, Get off. Get off, John. Don't, don't worship me. I'm just an angel. I'm just a creature. Worship God. God gets confused. He messes up, right? And so the angel says, Get off. Worship God. He says, Look, I'm not the one. You need to be worshiping God. Don't be confused because I'm giving you this revelation. And then we see, in verse 11, the most majestic, powerful scene of Jesus after his coming to the earth. His coming. In verse 11, we see, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His title is Faithful and True. Unlike the Antichrist, Faithful the chosen, the imposter Christ. This is the true Christ. And so this title, Faithful and True, is actually a, a, a reminder to, to us as believers that Christ will deliver on the promises that He said He would deliver on. He is who He said He is, and we can bank on that. We can rely on that. And then at the end of the verse, we see, and in righteousness He judges. So, the words that Isaiah used were words like fury in Isaiah 13, like we just said a couple last time. Fury and judgment and wrath and anger of the Lord, right? Because the Lord isn't just love and mercy and compassion. He's also righteousness and judgment, and he inflicts in his judgment wrath. And the Apostle John used those same words like Isaiah. The Apostle John used those words in Revelation 14. The cup of his anger, the wrath of the Lamb and of God. So, what this is telling us is those wrathful judgments are righteous. 
they're scared. They're scared. Even though sometimes we see that. And so his judgment is always fair. They are righteous in the Lord's fear and remember verse 11. And verse 11 finishes with, he raises the roof. He raises the roof. That's pretty different than the Lord. The Lord wants to picture Jesus as a sweet, baby, cuddly, baby in a manger. And if you felt that he convicted, but Jesus is not just. He didn't, he's not just the one who came in meekness. He's not just the one who came in humility. He's also the one who will return with great judgment and with love. This is one testimony. And we have to look at the full person, the full counsel of God, to understand who this Jesus is. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah stood before the throne of God, and he was terrified. He says, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And he called him the Lord of hosts. Hosts is an old English word for army. He saw the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies, and he was terrified. He saw him. On his throne. And what does John do? John comes along in the Apostle John in John 12, 31, and he says, You know who Isaiah saw? He saw the King of Kings. Christ is the Lord of the armies. And we're not talking about an army of Navy SEALs. We're not talking about an army of, you know, Army Rangers, which is tough with those guys, right? We're talking about an army of supernatural. Angelic beings with what we would describe as the, in comparison to us, supernatural powers. The commander in chief of that army is the baby that was in the manger. And he would come not as a meek and mild man who would walk in the destitute. He would come as the Lord of Kings when he returns. And that's what these passages are telling us. Verse 12. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. Eyes are a flame of fire. That is a description for his righteous judgment of sin, because all judgment has been delegated to the Son. The Father has given all judgment to the Son, and so he judges righteously, and he judges sin righteously. And it says, he has many diadems. That's, that's a word we would give. Many, they have to get many crowns, crowns full of jewels. And it's a sign of his sovereignty, his kingship, that he will return. He will return the land that he lost when he returns. And then there's this unknown man. Right? This unknown man. But no one knows except himself. You see, there's some things that God doesn't reveal about himself. We don't put God in a box and say, oh, I got you, God. You're, you're all defined for me right here. Right. You know what we know about God? This fact. This fact. He reveals to us what we need to know about Him so that we trust Him, so that we know that He is a God who sacrifices for us, who sacrifices His Son, who sends His Son as a lamb who is silent before us like a sheep. He reveals enough to us so that we know 
is the God who loves us, who sacrifices us for us, and who longs for us. The lesser of these is the God who issues pure judgment and disdain. So we know that God is perfect, and that if God has determined, you need to know that His words matter, and His thoughts matter of us. And as the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 11, We can't fully know him with our little finite heathenism if he is infinite and he is eternal. Verse 13. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The blood here is the blood of his enemies, which he takes away for sin. And his title is the Word of God. There's always been great power in the Word of God, right? And in the beginning, in Genesis 1, God said, Let there be light. There was light. He just said it. It's a word. Boom! The sun, the stars. And let there be an expanse between the waters above and the waters below. And that looks like a big expanse. Let there be an light. Boom. Come up, light. Boom, boom, boom. Always been great power in the Word of God. Or how about Isaiah 55, where we read, where the Lord says, My words will not return to me without accomplishing their purpose. Or Isaiah 40, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God stands forever, right? Forever. In 1 Peter 1 23, the Apostle Peter said that the Word of God gives life. Life eternal. Everlasting life. And so, we know from the Apostle John and John 1 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so, in His first coming, by His presence on the earth, He offered life. He, he is the Word of God as a person. Through His person, he extended life. He is absent now. He is in heaven. Right? He will return. But while he's in heaven, he still offers life, offers life eternal through his written word. It is still the undeniable power of the word of God. Whether it's a person uses or written word, there has always been great power in the word of God. When he returns, he will give life. He will give life because he will restore God's creation. Because God rules and God reigns void, and the word of God is unstoppable. The Christian, the word of God, the writing, the word of God, the word of God is unstoppable. Redemption is not complete until he returns. He fixes what Adam messed up. Until he returns and reclaims that which Adam gave up. That's what he And the only that which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, nothing like the cloth, white and clean were following him on white horses. And I'm here with reference to fine linen. We just saw that in verse 8. Fine linen. 
I mean, we would close in verse 8 with fine linen as, as the bride was prepared to return with Christ to the earth. And so, that's church age believers. Now, we know from Matthew 24 that angels also accompanied the Lord when he returned. And so, what we're seeing here is the second coming. We saw the rapture where Jesus comes not to the earth, fully to the earth, but simply calls and draws the church with him, raptures the church, sends it to heaven. And now we have Jesus returning, but he's actually going to return and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives. He will physically return his disciples to the earth. And so, really, you could say the second coming has two stages to it. One is the rapture, where he comes to the clouds, raptures his church. And then the second, that's the first phase. The second phase of the second coming is actually coming to the earth physically with his feet on the Mount of Olives. Verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. You see, that's the last one. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. So with a word, and we're talking about the truth from his mouth, with a word, the word of God, this person, destroys his enemies. He speaks, so he strikes down the nations, these are nations that are gathered against Israel, nations that are aligned with the Antichrist against Israel. The word of God is destruction. It's described in Hebrews 4 as sharper than any two-edged sword. What do we have here? We have the sword coming out of the person who is named the Word of God. This writer on the white horse is named Sophie Church, who is named the Word of God. With his word, he slaughters the enemies of God, and he rules with a rod of iron, as we saw before. This reference to the wine press is referring to divine judgment. Some of the passages that we saw last time on Joel 3 and Isaiah 63, the wine press is a reference to the judgment of God. Well, this is a time of sovereignty. This is a time of righteousness from God. It's not a time of mercy. It's a time of mercy for Israel because grace has been rejected. This is a time of judgment and sovereignty because grace has been rejected and so the spirit of mercy that God just throws on the earth and he turns his face to judgment. And that's the time that we're seeing here at the second coming of the Lord. Verse 16. And on his robe and on his thighs he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This is on his thighs, right? So a, a rider on a horse approaches, and, and the people are looking up at the rider. What's most conspicuous about the rider is when he's when he's driving the horse, his thighs are, are most conspicuous to the people who are standing there. And so you see this title. They will see the title written on his thighs. And it is a title that the world King of Kings, Lord of Lords. But I was ordained at that time. He will ever be He will ever be what his title means. The significance of this title, and how is he going to do it? How is he going to display that it's a title that you should take seriously? He's going to display it when he drives his horses. When he's in his fierce wrath. 
through the spirit of his kingdom as that day of atonement, as the apostle John described it. The judgment will make his title weak and undermined to a rebellious world. Jesus, this is very difficult for him. Where he comes as a helpless baby, humble. Where he rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. Where he allows himself as a sheep who is silent before the executioner. Where he allows the Roman soldiers to remove the skin from his back with their whips. He said, No, 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 no. He didn't say that. As a sheep who is silent. Who allows them to put him on the and beat the cross? That is not the cross that we are going to That cross we are going to The judgment of the universe. Julia Ward Howe was used by this passage. And she also, in 1861, was convicted that the nation, which was embroiled in the Civil War, brother fathering brother, brother fighting against brother, she was convicted that the nation was being judged before her because we had adopted slavery as part of the nation and as part of our culture. And so, as she stayed in the Willard Hotel next to the White House, in November of 1861, she woke up in the middle of the night and she penned a poem. A poem that became a hymn. And she wrote it as a poem and as a hymn, and it's what we know as the Bible Hymn of America, which was published in February 1862. And I'm going to just She said this. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage with the grace of righteous grace. He has loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible discord. His truth is not my own. I have seen him in the white fire that I hated so intense. They have built him an altar in the evening dews and dance. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamp. Gospel lit in burning throats of steel. As you deal with my contentment, so with you, my grace shall deal. Let the hero born of woman cross the serpent with a seal. And Father, my Father, we have to be responsible to be a thousand years old. I wish we could get that back when the battle hymn of the Republic was even that verse is just not there. But that's what they did. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call his truth. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Oh, God, is my God. In the beauty, yeah, I love this. In the beauty of the lily, part the point across the sea. In the glory in his company that transfigures me now. As he died to make me holy, let us die to make me free. For God is my it was reported that in President Lincoln heard that song that 
Jesus when he did it. And he cried out, see it again. See it again. These were her words that reflected the coming of the Lord and the judgment and righteousness that he will bring when he comes. So back to the passage. Revelation 19, 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the throne, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the heavens, Come, assemble for the great supper of God. This is not a banquet. This is not. This is a place. Come down and have a celebration. This is a supper of judgment. This is a supper for the Lord so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and the voice of sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, and small and great. So this 18 is the final battle of the tribulation. It's where the armies who are aligned with themselves battle against Israel. And you notice these are armies because it says, at the end of verse 18, and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them. These are soldiers who are aligned against God. And we'll see more of that in a couple of verses. So the judgment here is the slaughtering of these soldiers aligned against Christ. It's Christ who not only slaughters them, but it says, all. And the flesh of all men, the rest of humanity who are aligned with Antichrist, anyone who's aligned with Antichrist at that time, Jesus removed from the world. That's what this reference here is the flesh of the, the flesh of all men. Those are unbelievers. And what this verse is saying is it's forecasting for us two verses from now. Two or three verses from now. We can basically say there's no heaven for you. No place to hide. All who oppose Christ are destroyed, regardless of their social status, regardless of their power, regardless of their economic status, because God reigns and He wants us to mortify to Him forever. As further judgment by this rider on a white horse, whose name was Satan, and through his name was the Word of God, as further judgment. These carcasses get no burial. No dignity of a burial. These soldiers who are aligned against the Antichrist, the Germans aligned against the Antichrist, these non combatants, non soldiers, just civilians who are aligned with Antichrist, who the Lord removed from the earth before he strikes, what does it say here in Revelation? Before he strikes the, the golden age, they, they don't have the dignity of a burial. Instead, as further judgment, summon the vultures to devour their carcasses. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. So just consider this for a minute. Armies, human armies, arrayed against Open, obvious rebellion against Christ. What does it say at the end? And against his army. Well, who's the army that was to destroy? 
those who are justified in him. So, the rebellion against Christ is not just about him. It's not just against him, it's against us. Anyone who's aligned with Christ, and that's actually what I'm saying, Okay, at any time, anyone who's aligned with Christ, the world doesn't like Christ. The world hates Christ. And if it's clear that you're with Christ, you're going to receive some persecution, right? You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be made fun of. You're going to be mocked because you're with the one. You have the audacity to align yourself with the one who the world doesn't like. You have the audacity to align yourself with Jesus. And so, here, is open rebellion against Christ and against His honor. Verse 20. And the beast was seized, and with him the false prophet, who performed the signs that in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burned with brimstone. Verse 21. And the rest were killed with the sword which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their food. So verse 20, the Antichrist and the false prophet removed from the scene, thrown into the lake of fire. Verse 21, the rest, not just the army, were arrayed and aligned with Christ, who are judged. It's also the rest of humanity who are unbelievers, who have aligned themselves with Antichrist because it will be very clear in the tribulation who's aligned themselves with Christ and who's aligned themselves with Antichrist. They have a mark and a mark on their hands, on their forehead that aligns themselves with Antichrist. And so the rest here are unbelievers because Jesus explained in Matthew 25 that there will be a judgment right before the Right before the millennium begins, there will be a judgment. That's what Jesus describes as the, as the, the goat and the sheep. The judgment of the goat and the sheep. The goat, that is the unbelievers, as described in Matthew 25, and they are removed from the earth so that the millennium, the golden age, starts with unbelievers, the sheep, and then they repopulate the earth. And so at the end of the tribulation, when Jesus returns, one of the things that he does is he removes all unbelievers from the earth. That's the rest here, and the rest were killed with the sword. This is a righteous judgment that the Lord imposes, that Jesus, that the God man imposes against those who murdered tribulational believers, tribulational saints. And one more thing I want to point out here in this verse notice that it's God, it's Christ who does all the fighting. The believers who are the army, we're, we're behind them. It's not me. We don't do anything. It's his word. He executes this judgment against his army, against unbelievers, with his word. And we just sit back and watch. And he does all the work. He does all the work. It's kind of like a dinosaur walking in the past. Tribulation is the second coming. I just have to say that. Will we just 
repentance is judgment. It's the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is this bigger concept that is where the Lord intervenes in human history to either give extraordinary judgment or extraordinary blessing. And blessing comes out of the judgment where he intervenes in human history in dramatic ways. So we just finished the judgment phase of the day of the Lord. Now we're going to talk about the blessing phase of the day of the Lord. So once the Lord finishes with his blessing on the day, then comes the judgment. So bow your knees. Once he's busted up and removed the nasty old sheetrock and the nasty cabinet, clean them all out, now he gives us this great kind of blessing. He gives the world this great kind of blessing. And it was promised many, many, many times in the Old Testament. We're just going to see a few passages. But what the Old Testament does is it promises a golden age, and then the New Testament says, Jesus is rich on the promises of the golden age. Let's start with Isaiah 2 4. This is a sweet blessing of peace. Peace and grace. And he, the Lord, will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn skill. And this is victory in the thousand years in Christ. This is not today. We need an army. We need Navy SEALs. We need Army Rangers to defend our nation. We need weapons to defend ourselves, right? Jesus is not here today with his rod of iron, forcing global submission to his righteousness. Then, in, in the tribulation, we won't need him. We won't need the weapon we have, okay? But we're in that age today. We're in the age where there's a different ruling of the world, and it's the deliberate one of Satan. But at that time, in the golden age, the Lord will bring for a thousand years global peace. And nations will not war against other nations. And there will be so much prosperity that if they take those weapons and turn them into tools of, of agriculture, let's use them for our prosperity because we're not worried about other armies invading us. We're not worried about bad guys coming to get us in the middle of the night and breaking our hearts because we're just rich. So let's reclaim the rule of God's rule over God's creation. Another Old Testament passage talking about the promises of the golden age and the great blessing on the earth is Isaiah 35. And this is the blessing of good health in the golden age, a thousand year reign. Isaiah 35 4 says, Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, the recompense of God will come. There's judgment, the land of judgment comes blessing. But he will save you. Verse 5, then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the eyes of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. This is this rich, rich blessing of great health in the golden age. Illnesses will be removed. Illnesses will be removed from the population. And this is why Jesus, when he was Fifteen did the miracles he did, right? I mean, there's no record that he 
turned a rock into his cup or a tree into a rock. Why, why didn't he do that? Why didn't he do the miracles that he chose to do? Because he was a guy that was He was, Jesus did the miracles that he did because he was communicating to the people, I am the one who will do these promises globally. And I'm going to give you a little evidence here, Israelites, of what what I will do as Messiah. I'm the evidence to you that I am able to do what Messiah is promised, is prophesied to do. That I'm going to heal this man, and I'm going to heal this man, and I'm going to heal this weak man. And that should show to you, in verse 15, that I'm able to capable to do what the Old Testament promised Messiah will do. Jesus chose his miracles with extreme precision because. Another passage prophesying the golden age in the Old Testament. This is a blessing of long life. Long life. Verse 19 of Isaiah 55. I will also rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people, and there will no longer be heard and heard the voice of weeping and the sound of crying with torment. No longer will there be an infant who lives. Or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of 100, and the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be dead at first. If someone dies at 100 years old in the millennium, what happens? He dies so young, he's a baby. What happens? Because old people are still alive. Illness is going to be gone. Wars are going to be gone. There's going to be global change. And people will live long, long, long years. This is a time of suffering and concern. This is a time when the second Adam initiated as the first Adam. Another passage from the Old Testament promising these rich blessings of the golden age, Isaiah 11. This is a passage about how Second Adam will transform nature so that nature itself is at peace and we are at peace in nature. Isaiah 11 6 And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fattening wolf, and the fattening together, and a little boy will lead them. Can you imagine that? A little boy with a lion and uh, an other cattle. A lion behind him and a calf and a goat. It's crazy. But it won't be crazy in the morning because everything will be different. Verse 7. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The wolf is going to transform meteor. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. Verse 9, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is a great blessing of how nature will be transformed. He's going to tame animals. He's going to transform animals so that they're not 
immediately, they will be transmitted. And it's going to be totally different. This is really the Lord when He returns restoring the created order. Because in Genesis 1, when He spoke the world over, it says, Because what are you scared of that? That's a reversal of the created order. Adam, bring that line over here. You're named a lion. Bring that up. You're named a leopard. You're named a bear. Right? Adam had authority over them. He named them. That's a sign of authority. But not today. Not today. You fear wild creation to you. The golden age will be quite different. And then the last verse. There's global submission to the Lord. That's why it says the knowledge of the Lord will be everywhere as the waters cover the sea. One last passage from the Old Testament, torn from the Golden Age, the blessing of the Golden Age. This is why the Lord has to clean out the earth first before He institutes all of these blessings. Zechariah 8.2. This is a blessing to Israel. So many people and many nations will come to seek the Lord's host in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, in those days ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of the Jews, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. In the millennium, the Lord will make Jerusalem the worldwide temple. There will be a Jewish empire. The Jew of Jews, Jesus of Nazareth, the God man. And so Jews will be held in such high esteem. Someone will say, Can I go with you? Can you give me access to the king, to the ruler there in Jerusalem? Can you give me access? Because I know that you're aligned with him, you're, you're, you're connected with him. Will you give me access to him? There's going to be such high esteem. For Israel, because the king of Israel will be ruling the world at that time. But there are many other Old Testament passages that talk about the great promises of the physical, prosperous reign on the earth of the Lord that He will do during the Golden Age through Israel. That's all we have time for from the Old Testament. Let me go to. Satan, 
That's where they are now. And Jesus returns, he will undo that and reclaim that which Adam lost, and he will do what God has always done, which is his righteous reign. This is the kingdom of on the earth. And so the kingdom has always been God's plan from the foundation of the world. And now we read from the Apostle Peter additional information about how Jesus is the one who will fulfill the promises of old. Though we read, heaven must receive Jesus until the period of restoration of all things. And it was God's first by the mouth of his holy They came to life 
the tribulation. And we believe that Christ for a thousand years, the two things that are going on in this church is resurrection of believers and there's reigning where both believers are reigning with Christ for a thousand years. This is the third time we've seen the phrase a thousand years before this church. John says a thousand years over and over and over. Why? Because it's a literal thousand years. It's not a figurative description for a long period of time. He says a thousand years over and over and over to tell us this is a literal time period. And the resurrection that's involved here is the resurrection of tribulational martyrs who were martyred in the tribulation. I believe it also refers to Old Testament believers who are resurrected here as well. This is the end of the first resurrection, the resurrection and the life. But there's two resurrections. There's the resurrection for believers and there's the resurrection for believers. The resurrection, which is called the first resurrection, which is the resurrection for believers and the life, has an order. The first Jesus who was resurrected on the third day. That's the first who was resurrected in the resurrection and the life. The first resurrection. Next verse. Then the next part of the order, the, 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 the timeline of the resurrection, is the rapture of the church. And then the rapture has an order in it too. The dead are raised first, and then we who are alive are raised. So the first resurrection, which is the resurrection and the life, has an order. First it was Jesus, then it's church of believers. And now we see the tail end of the resurrection of life, the first resurrection, which is Old Testament believers in tribulation of Christ. So they're resurrected and they're alive. As opposed to what we will see next Sunday, which is the resurrection of the dead. It's unbelievers who are resurrected and have a blessed body. That's horrific resurrection. We'll see that next Sunday night in one of the beautiful eternal studies. And so, Revelation 20, in the final moment here of this evening, Revelation 20 goes on to say that at the end of the millennium, Satan is released from his thousand year imprisonment. He foments a rebellion. God crosses it like, like a bag under a boot and casts Satan into the lake of fire forever.
pray these things in the name of your Son, His Majesty, the Lord.